Okay, well, welcome. Uh, glad you guys could make it out on this holiday weekend. Happy Thanksgiving to you guys. Um, we, my family and I, praise the Lord for each of you and for this church, and uh, we are abundantly blessed and thankful for each of you. Uh, I hope you have a handout uh, today. We're going to cover a myriad of topics in church history to try to wrap up this period of what we are calling the Imperial Church or Ancient History Part 2. So I kind of have a couple, three items that are kind of just left over from my outlines of things I hope to do. I think I told you initially when we talked uh, the very first week that I was going to talk about the rise of Islam. We're not getting to that today, so if you're coming for that, I'm sorry. Um, but we're going to talk about three distinct things, and I think they each play a major role in the evolution of the church going forward, and I think I have some things that we can talk about as far as application at the end as to what we can learn from this previous five weeks in today's study as well. Um, one of the topics we're going to cover is the canonization of the New Testament and what that means and when that occurred within the history of the church, and because we're doing that, I thought it'd be good for us to read and consider the words of Psalm 19, uh, which stresses, obviously, God's general revelation and then his special revelation through the word in the second half. So turn with me to Psalm 19. I'll read that, and then we'll pray. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs, into, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from, also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, we are humbled to consider that you are our rock and that you have provided redemption for us through your precious son's blood, Jesus. So, Lord, we give you praise for that. Lord, we praise you for um, the preservation of your word throughout history. Lord, your hand has been at work in doing that, and uh, we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that today, Lord, that our hearts would be um, attuned more to your sovereignty, to your purposes, Lord. May we uh, be found faithful 
and understanding who you are. And Lord, in light of who you are, Lord, may we have a greater understanding of who we are. And Lord, I would ask that you would help us as we consider the history of your church, Lord. Lord, I would hope that we would see that you are infinitely glorious. And Lord, that you are doing a work to build your church in the past. You've done that, Lord. and You're continuing to do it today. So Lord, I pray even as we think about these things, that our hearts would be drawn to what we are to do, Lord, to increase your church. Lord, you have always used means. And we, Lord, are the means of building the church today, along with the word and the spirit. So, Lord, I pray you would empower us. Lord, we love you and we praise you for the opportunity to be together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so, if you could look at your handout. I've got the, the, the three topics we're going to kind of study today are the New Testament canon, the uh, rise of monasticism or monks and then the influence of the papacy or the pope in rome so these are varied topics but they all kind of come to a culmination right now in history um, as they begin to have emphasis so right now just so you remember we're around in between the years 300 to about 550 a.d so last time i taught we ended around 313 so we've progressed 200 years in six weeks so I hope the next time we do this that we'll progress more. I would bet that we can do the next 1,000 years pretty quickly um, the next time because we're entering a time of dark ages both in culture and in the church after what we talk about today. So understand that there's history kind of moves slowly at this time and then it stops because learning ceases, um, the empire of Rome falls and we enter in culture and history into the dark ages. So, hence the reason that we're spending so much emphasis of time at this period as well. So, just a little taste as we get into the church of the Middle Ages. Next time we'll go a little bit faster. Um, so, the first thing I want to talk about is the formulation of the New Testament. There's one big date you need to be aware of in this part. But I want you to understand there's several things that lead up to this but the one big date for you understand is 397 AD and that's the Council of Carthage at the Council of Carthage the church formally recognizes the New Testament books that we have in our Bible today it also accepts um, the Old Testament writings that are in our Bible today and then lastly it also set it, it accepts some other Old Testament books or books from the Old Testament period that are not authoritative. So this is where you start seeing in the in the Catholic Bible some additional books, the Apocrypha. So there are some Old Testament period apocryphal books that the church accepts at this time. Those are books like Judith, Tobit, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and then the wisdom books of Solomon. So I'm telling you this just so you understand where we got to those books being involved. Um, but there's two things we need to talk about here. There's two words that are very important. One is canonicity, and the other one is authority. Okay? Um, the books, the inspired letters of Paul, the Gospels, the other uh, writings of the New Testament, had authority before 397 AD. Authority is not granted by church council. Okay? Authority is granted by the inspiration of God's word through the spirit in the writing of the texts themselves. So when we say that the church, now the, the Catholic church is going to say 
this is where we blessed and gave authority to these books. The church is overarching over God's word. It's giving the authority in Catholic doctrine uh, to these books. As Protestants and as evangelical Christians, we come to understand in the history of the church as well that these, these letters and books were written and they were accepted as authoritative very early on in the history of the church. So I'm going to back up a little bit and we're going to get to how that was the case. Um, because um, when you, a lot of the arguments that people make against the validity of scripture is that it didn't come into fruition until around 400 A.D., well, that's not accurate, okay? The church long held these books as authoritative before 397 AD. So authority means that these books, we believe that they had authority as soon as they were written and were treated thusly for the prior three centuries leading up to the Council of Carthage. The, the idea of canonicity means the church recognizes the authority that these books already had. Okay, so that's what canon is. Canon comes from the, I think the Greek word canon, which means measuring rod. So that these books meet up to the measuring rod of what it is to be God's word. One historian who's done much studies on how we got the Bible says, a book first has divine authority based on its inspiration and then attains canonicity due to its general acceptance as a divine product. No church council by its decrees can make the books of the Bible authoritative. The books of the Bible possess their own authority indeed, and indeed had this authority long before there were any councils of the church. Okay, so that's, that's what we believe about God's word, that it wasn't 397 that gave these books their authority. If you look back on the early church fathers, a, a generation after the apostles, Justin Martyr said this about God's word. He says, on Sundays in the Christian worship assemblies, the memoirs of the apostles were read along with the writings of the prophets. So one generation removed from the apostles, Justin Martyr saying, we do two things. We read two things, the prophets, think Old Testament, and the memoirs of the apostles, so think the writings of the New Testament, most likely Paul's epistles at that time. Um, and then in, by the end of the second century, archaeologically, we, in the uh, 18th century, there's a guy that found a document um, in, that's dated back to around the 200s. It's called the Muratorian Fragment, and it's named after a guy named Muratoria, who found a list of uh, inspired works. Um, so we have archaeological evidence that supports our New Testament books are authoritative. Interesting, even on this list of books that uh, Muratoria found, it includes some writings that some people always challenge, uh, like the Shepherd of Hermas. Some people believe that could be an additional book to the New Testament. It lists it as a non-authoritative book, yet beneficial. So even from there, um, we have evidence of these lists of books. So what I'm trying to tell you is it's not like the church gathered all the, the books, and in 397 put their stamp of approval on them. The church had already accepted, for the most part, these books. Um, the, the Muratorian Fragment includes all of our New, New Testament books, except for a few, Hebrews, James, Second uh, Peter, and Third John. Just kind of questions about uh, who wrote those books, things like that, further discussion needed to be had. Also, some of those books weren't as widely uh, disseminated across Christianity. So at some point, 
some other parts of Christendom might not have been aware that those books even existed. Um, so there's just, there's, there is a process to doing that. I think it would be appropriate for there to be a process to make sure the books are authoritative instead of just assigning authority um, or assigning canonicity to something without looking at it quickly. See, I caught myself. I just said authority. We don't assign authority to the books. The books themselves have authority. Um, early in, this, uh, in the second century as well, um, lists about what were the authoritative books of the New Testament were relevant because at the time, one of the greatest heretics of the church was a guy named Marcion. And Marcion had kind of taken um, the New Testament books and said which ones he thought were authoritative. He was uh, zealously opposed to anything Jewish, so he didn't accept Matthew, Mark, or John, but he accepted Luke as a gospel uh, because it was written by a Gentile. Um, he also accepted the Acts of the Apostles and all of Paul's writings, even though Paul was Jewish, he did accept them, probably because Paul was the um, missionary to the Gentiles or the apostle to the Gentiles. So he accepted those things. So the church had to respond to Marcion and say, no, no, these other books are important as well, and they have authority from the apostles. In the 200s, the early church father Origen wrote commentaries on much of the New Testament books, and his list is similar to that of the Muratorian fragment. Early in the 300s, somebody that we've talked about this time was Eusebius, and he, his list was similar to that of Origen. He actually divided that three sections of books, so understanding that there was a controversy already. He said that there was the universally acknowledged books of the New Testament, which is all the ones I listed earlier, except for the ones I said were disputed. But he also said there was a group of disputed books where the church was still trying to come to an agreement as to whether they were um, actually uh, inspired works. And then he had a third list, and these were the rejected books. So in the early 300s, we had an idea that there were generally accepted books of the New Testament, some books that were potentially disputed, and then thirdly, books that were um, completely rejected. Interesting, the books that, you know, that people want to refer to, especially liberal uh, theologians want to refer to that are not in our canon, were rejected at that time. It's not like in 400, they came in and said, oh, no, these books don't, don't, aren't scriptural. No, those books were, have been rejected throughout the ages of church history. Okay? Um, he actually said about the rejected books, particularly the shepherd of Hermas in the epistle of Barnabas, that these books could be read for edification, but they did not possess divine authority. Um, so the church has a settled position on the New Testament for the most part. By the time 367 comes by, one of our heroes from the last four or five weeks, Athanasius produces a list of the New Testament books, which is same as the 27 we have today. Okay? Um, you might ask, and I don't have this in my notes, what about the Old Testament? Um, the Old Testament was so intricately copied down from the ages by the scribes, really not much argument about the Old Testament. Um, generally accepted, except for those other books that were added by the Catholic Church. So the Council of Carthage in 397 did some other things. Uh, we talked about it last week with Pelagius. This is where Pelagius was condemned a heretic under the leadership of Augustine, uh, but this is also where the church recognizes the 27 books of the New Testament. And this is the quote at the end of their edict regarding that. And catch this, because this is going to talk, this kind of gets us into the talk about the papacy. 
It says, let this be sent to our brother and fellow bishop, Pope Boniface. So 397, don't worry about Pope Boniface. So we want, we're going to send this document to him, and he's going to make, he's going to confirm this. So he has a place of importance in their view. And then we're also going to send it to the other bishops of those parts, that they may confirm this canon, for these are the things in which we have received from our fathers to be read in church. So I think it's important here that this, um, this um, council is making this decision, that this council is subverting its view of this, waiting on the approval of one man and some other bishops. So these other bishops aren't named, but one bishop is named, and that's the leader of Rome. Um, so already at that time, we see some authority given to the bishop of Rome. So that kind of gives us an idea of how we got the New Testament and how and what at this period of time um, what the church had done for it. This is an important distinction, though, when you think about Catholic versus Protestant theology, though. Um, it's important that we understand that really, like I said earlier, the church in the, in the Catholic view of things is giving the authority to the books of the Bible. And we're saying, no, the books of the Bible, the Bible has its authority on its own merits and doesn't need to be the church. But this is the tension between the church's role, uh, tradition, and the role of the church for the ages to come. And this is where we're entering into the Middle Ages, kind of this enslavement on some degree of God's word in submission to the church, um, cosmopolitan, in the, in, the, in the world. We good? Topic two. <clears throat> the, moment, the monastic movement. Okay, so this is a pretty big thing. I mean, you start thinking about some of the things that trigger your mind, thinking about the Middle Ages and uh, the time of the Reformation are monks, you know, kind of dressed in brown garb. And you think about Luther, you know, he's got his head shaved around there and he's got hair just right here. Um, so these are kind of memorable things. And why are they important and how did they come about is what we'll talk about now. <clears throat> So the, the initial uh, monks um, had their beginnings before the time of Constantine. Remember, 313 is the key date with Constantine when Christianity became legal. But several of these uh, monks had their beginnings prior to that. Um, a lot of times these people were fleeing cities, probably to avoid persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. Um, others maybe fled cities when they weren't being persecuted by the Roman Empire because they felt like Life was too comfortable in the city. So they're fleeing comfort in order to have a more rigorous, rigorous lifestyle. So they, these monks, prior to Constantine, decided to flee the culture of the day. And their goal was to live in solitude. Okay? Um, the Greek word is monachos, M-O-nachos. It probably is pronounced differently, but I love saying mo nachos this week. Um, and that word does not mean chicken or beef. It means solitary. Um, so you had a solitary, uh, the idea of a monk was someone that lived solitary or in solitude. Um, they uh, believed in living simple lives. They were dedicated to prayer and meditation. Um, and the initial ones didn't go out and live in community. They wanted to live by themselves um, because they didn't want to be distracted from their ability to worship. 
and these were the monks of the desert, so they left the, uh, maybe the confines of a big city like Alexandria and fled to the desert. Now, some would think that these monks are fleeing to the desert because they want to live a more difficult, hardship-type life. Yes, that's, on some level, that's, that's right, but they didn't always just go live in the harshest of conditions. Uh, a lot of these monks just fled somewhere where there weren't other people. Solitude was their goal, not necessarily to inflict uh, strict discipline and injury on themselves. It gets to that at some point as well, though. They were motivated by the words of Paul, um, where he said that if, anyone, uh, if one did not marry, he would be more free to serve the Lord. So definitely an early emphasis on celibacy, okay? Uh, and their goal in living celibate lives was to see the return of the Lord. So there was an expectation, an eschatological expectation for them. Um, it is thought, um, so, so what I want, want to emphasize though, there were monks prior to Constantine. Yet after Constantine comes, the church is now legal. It's legal to be a Christian in the empire. Um, and some, many people are flocking to become members of the church because now it's legal, and Constantine himself is a Christian, so there's support from the state to be a Christian on some level. And we've talked about this before, but there was nominalism kind of came in. You could become a Christian and there not be any um, rejection of your comforts at the time. You could become a, a socially acceptable Christian is what was happening. And some people thought that was not how the Christian life was to be lived. And that's where the second wave of the monastic movement came from. Uh, so many people, after Constant Constantine fled society, because they felt that the church had become too worldly or that they were not separated from the world. It's thought that at the, this time, some 20,000 women, so it's not exclusive to just men, and 10,000 men found their homes in the Egyptian desert. So as people were entering the church, um, maybe from pagan cultures, historically pagan cultures in the Roman Empire, masses were also exiting as well. Uh, these people lived simple lives of solitude, dedicated to prayer and meditation. Um, they also, it's not like they didn't do anything. They worked. They would do things in work where they could just do kind of rote uh, tasks over and over. So while they did those tasks, let's say like basket weaving, um, they could pray and meditate. And that was their goal to be in a constant state of prayer and meditation. Um, I haven't found at this point that they were quiet Okay, so I don't, I don't, anything about like monks taking a vow of silence, I don't have anything in that just yet. Um, but they worked, um, they had limited possessions, they had uh, just their necessary clothing and whatever uh, text of the Bible that they could have their hands on. Um, they did eat, so you understand that, but what they did was provide what they sold, they used uh, to, uh, to feed themselves. <clears throat> so... Like I said, the word monk is from the Greek word monachos, meaning solitary. Um, there's a couple different names here of monks. The first one we're going to talk about is an anchorite, which is a monk that has withdrawn from society. So it's not within the confines of a given city, the anchorites. Um, and their goal was to have solitude away from society. A couple of the early ones that were anchorites that are important um, one was Anthony, who was born in 270 A.D. in Egypt. He was influenced by the text in Matthew 
of the rich young ruler of Jesus's uh, conversation with him where Jesus says sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven then come follow me so he took that to mean sell everything and not have anything he also was he had come across some wealth initially in his life and uh, from inheritance and he was responsible for taking care of his sister so he was first influenced by that one um, verse but then he also was influenced by Matthew six thirty four. Which, said, which says, do not be anxious for tomorrow. So he sold everything he had and got rid of the wealth he even had to take care of his sister. Um, he was responsible for that. He lived almost 100 years. He spent his life in the desert praying and meditating. He learned this practice by studying other monks. So some people attribute Anthony as the first monk. He was not. Um, he was provided bread every few days from some neighboring kind souls. And eventually he was pursued by others that wanted to follow a lifestyle similar to him. He initially resisted, but he finally agreed to have some disciples. His biography is written by Athanasius, The Life of Anthony, and it was a widely read book in the Western Empire, part of the empire, and it was read by Augustine as well. So remember we talked about Augustine fleeing Milan and wanting to come back and settle and study. Well, he was influenced by this book about Anthony and hoping to become a monk. <clears throat> Anthony says this, he who sits in solitude and is quiet has escaped from three wars, hearing, speaking, and seeing. So he understands that when you, there are wars going on when those things happen. Yet, but then he says, yet against one thing shall he continually battle, that is his own heart. So maybe the, the monks were encouraged by the fact that if they could avoid the world, they could, they could achieve higher righteousness. But on some level, even Anthony admits that the issue is a heart issue, right? Um, that you can't conquer the heart by strict discipline. But he is the first of the well-known Egyptian desert fathers. He did, one thing that's interesting, too, is he did visit Alexandria twice. Uh, so he left the confines. I don't know if those are confines. The wilderness. <laughs> Of the, uh, of the desert, and he visited Alexandria and Athanasius. Now, some of this, you know, we, I don't know how historically verifiable it is, but Athanasius says that he came and railed against the Arians because Athanasius was very much in favor of the uh, uh, opposing uh, the Arians of the time. Um, and Athanasius wrote his biography, so I'm sure he wrote that. Um, that was one of the reasons that he came. A second monk that's important is Paul, not the Apostle Paul. Just a couple of little notes about him. So we have Athanasius, major church father, uh, defender of the Trinitarian uh, view of, uh, of the Godhead. And then Paul is this other apostle, and his biography is written by Jerome. So Jerome is the Latin church father that translated the Bible into Latin from the Greek and from the Hebrew. Um, so interesting that these two Jerome and Athanasius both wrote about these monks, almost glorifying uh, the monastic movement in some way. Um, Paul lived a life of prayer and ate exclusively dates for all of his life. He lived almost 100 years. So I submit to you dates for healthy living. I'm sorry about that. Um, his story is mostly legendary. Um, he lived alone. 
unlike Anthony, Anthony eventually had a group of disciples, um, and, but he at some point in his life was visited by Anthony, so they must have traded war stories about being monks. Um, and the reason he left uh, society initially was to flee persecution. Um, but you can see there's this kind of this glorification of these men that have withdrawn themselves from society. So those are two of the what we call anchorite monks. But then we have a group of monks that start doing what's called communal monasticism. And these guys are seno, I don't even know how to say this word, cenobitic, which means it's Greek for communal life. C-E-N-O-B-I-T-I-C, cenobitic, Greek for communal life. The early leader in this movement was a guy by the name of uh, Pachomius. And this guy built a shelter where he, uh, he moved out to the desert, built a shelter along with some of his followers. So he has a group of people going with him. He's not seeking to be in complete solitude. Um, he led a group of men um, in a lifestyle of prayer and discipline. These guys all gave up their possessions, and they agreed to submit to their superiors. Yet, in the rank and file of uh, submission, there was a view that the superiors and the ones under the followers should all serve each other. So there's an idea of mutual service for them. Um, Pachomius actually established nine monasteries in his lifetime, and each of those had several hundred monks within them. So people are coming out of the city and living in community. Um, so this is what you think about, I think, more so when we think about monks, is that they are living within community and they, within their little communities, they have everything they would need. They have people that are, uh, you know, cobblers who fix shoes. They have bakers. They have uh, guards. They have a variety of uh, tradespeople involved that are monks as well in order to live their lives. Um, interesting point, though, is if one wanted to become a monk, all they had to do was go up to the gate of the city and sit there and wait for the gatekeepers to let them in. And oftentimes the gatekeepers would judge someone's um, capacity to desire to be a monk um, by how long they would stay there and without food. Uh, so the gatekeepers were trying to see if they had what it took to be a, uh, a monk. Um, not just Christians, though, came at that time. There were even pagans that did and many that became Christians because of the influence of the monks. Um, the daily life of the Pachomian monk, they would pray without ceasing, sing the psalms while they were working. Um, three times daily, they gathered together to pray, sing, and read the Bible. They ate bread, fruits, vegetables, and fish. They didn't have a life of exaggerated poverty like some of the other guys did. Uh, whatever they made, they sold. They didn't do it just for food, but they also sold items uh, to give to the poor. So this idea of social involvement as well was important to these uh, communal monks. Um, they went to the local church, the closest one they could find, to have communion since they were not priests. So these are not priests in and of themselves. Uh, they're people outside of that. And there was an administration kind of set up to where, so Petromius ends up being the abbot over these nine uh, monasteries. And then there's leadership within each of those. And then within that, there's an administrator that kind of governs the affairs and makes sure the money's in order. He also has an aide. So there's an abbot, 
That was Petronius, and then his successors he would name before he passed away. So you kind of get this idea of a, an order of a monastery. So you start thinking about um, monasteries that you're familiar with potentially today, maybe the Franciscan order or the Dominicans or the Augustinians. There's these orders of uh, monasteries that have a system in place, and this is where it begins. It's from these guys. Um, so Petronius is very important in understanding that. I'll say, as you think about these things, though, so people think that in order to achieve higher spiritual state, they need to be a monk or they need to be a priest, right? This is what happens in culture for the next thousand years, that the super spiritual are either monks that are devoted in some unique, special way to God, as we just described, or the priesthood. Um, so if someone was living their life in society, they were thought as lesser than these two um, I guess spiritual, um, spiritual agents or whatever, the monastery and the priesthood. So a man living life with a family might be considered in, inferior spiritually. That's a very, very, the Reformation reforms that view that we can do all things for the glory of God. But this is the culture we're living in um, at this time. The last guy I'm going to highlight for you quickly is Martin of Tours. His biography was written by a man by the name of, I'm not going to try it, Servetus. <clears throat> As a Christian youth, <clears throat> Martin had a pagan father, yet he was converted to Christianity, and his father was upset about that, so he caused Martin to join the Roman military, thinking that would wash away the Christianity from him. And he served under the emperor Julian, Julian the Apostate, who was not a Christian, around 340 A.D. <clears throat> Yet he was still a Christian. Now this part of this is somewhat legend, legendary, but there's some interesting things here I think you're going to find intriguing, so just understand that. <clears throat> so as he's, as he's a uh, member of the army, um, he, comes, he and his cohort come across a beggar in the city of Amiens in northern France, and he sees this, this beggar, who's nearly naked, and he cuts his cape in half and gives half of it to uh, the beggar. So he cuts it in two. And it's reported that he has a dream that night, and he sees Jesus saying, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So he believes that he's done something that Jesus called him to do. And if you see anything uh, about Martin today, St. Martin, according to the Catholic Church, it probably involves him holding part of that cape. Um, legend says that a piece of that cape remained at that church in that city, in that area. The piece of the cape, hang with me here, is, comes from the, the term for that comes from the Latin word capella, C-A-P-E-L-L-A. -L -L this is where we get the word chapel. And those who served in that area were called chaplains. So chapel literally from the Latin means piece of cape. But that's where we get that. It's not other means. Since we're going to go to the chapel later, I thought you guys might want to know where we got that word. Um, eventually, Martin was baptized outside the city of Tours. Um, and he lived a life as a monk just on the outskirts of town. However, the popular pe the people of the day... Um, appointed him and desired that he become the bishop of Tours. 
Um, this, the church leadership at the time uh, did not want him to be the leader, the bishop, because he didn't look the part. These monks weren't clean. Um, they didn't look like they had the regalia that was necessary to be in leadership of the church. Yet he still became the bishop of Tours. And when he did, he took up residence right next to the church in kind of a cell to, to, so he could keep with his uh, monastic order in his discipline. So now you see, so before, the monks were outside of the church, outside of culture, even building up their own town separate. But now you see a monk becoming the bishop of the church. So there's this influence, and because of Martin's uh, view, the view of Martin being uh, the bishop, now they were looking to the monasteries for church leadership. <clears throat> so this was a major change in monasticism. The first goal of the monks was to withdraw from cities, and now it was influencing the leadership of the church. It was initially separated from the church, but now it's intertwined with it. Um, and going forward, the monasteries become the instrument for charity and missions within the church. Even Augustine himself would write his, what he calls, Augustinian canons, which are the rules of being a monk, um, which would later be used to establish a monastic order in his name. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. So this all kind of interrelates and connects. It's pretty amazing. So you see the rise of monasticism at this time um, as being very influential in church. All right, the third thing we're going to talk about, number three, is the rise of the papacy. The papacy just means the pope being the head of the church. Just real quick, let's clear our terms here. Pope means father. So in, in the ancient church, Anyone that had leadership over the church, um, a, a given church, might have been called pope, just because it means father. Um, yet, the rise of the papacy is about the, quote-unquote, father of the church. Um, but the idea here is that the Roman church, the church that was in Rome, had superiority, was superior to the churches, um, the other churches. And why was that the case? So they give several reasons why that might be the case. So here's some thoughts. Why was the church in Rome considered superior? There was the idea that the church was founded by Peter, so that Peter had gone to Rome and he founded the church, and because that was the case, and Peter was the greatest of the disciples, according to these folks, um, that's why the, the church in Rome was superior. Uh, the church was the capital city of the empire, so that's, that's a reason why it could be. Uh, the martyrdom of the saints um, at the hands of Nero in Rome sanctified that church, especially. <clears throat> and you remember we kind of hit on the fact that the, most of the Christological controversies about who the nature of Jesus were mainly in the East. Um, some would, the, the ones that supported the Roman um, primacy over the other churches would say that God had kept the Roman church pure of those controversies because they weren't entangled in those things. Um, there's probably other reasons for that that I've stressed, but one thing, just as an aside, that could be that is just language in general and cultural in general. Uh, those that were influenced by Greek culture, rigorous philosophy, dialogue, and the Greek language itself was built upon philosophy and so people were always debating ideas. That's just the Greek culture. The Roman culture, however, is, hey, we have a rule of law, 
and we are pushing that law as we extend our authority across the known world. Um, so the reason that they didn't have those controversies was more cultural. It wasn't because God had dispensed some special grace on the Roman church. Um, I think you guys all know I disagree with all these reasons, but I just wanted to clarify that. <clears throat> so they felt like that maybe their church was uncontaminated by the heresies of the day. Um, yet the Roman bishop did begin having um, influence early on. There is some allusions early on by the church fathers about the primacy of the Roman um, bishop, yet it wasn't until the time after Constantine that he really had influence. Um, just so to note, when Constantine was converted, the pope, the leader of the time was uh, in Rome was Sylvester I. There's not much about him, so it's not talking about Sylvester being that influential. Julius I, though, was followed up Sylvester, and he was integral in the Arian controversy, as far as at least taking a side and he took the side of Athanasius, and it was important for him to do that. So that showed that the Roman church had some authority. The first time a council submitted to the Roman church was at the Council of Sophia in 344. And they said that the deposed bishops by that council could appeal to Rome. So a unique authority for Rome. Uh, we talked about the Council of Constantinople in 381. Um, which said um, that the church of Constantinople is second in command to Rome. So they're saying, hey, we're important, but we're just under Rome, and then all these other ones below are below that. So that upset the Roman leaders because Rome did not have authority because of the, the, the Roman church didn't have, didn't, they didn't believe that the Roman church had authority because of the civil government, which is what Constantinople argued. They were saying since Constantinople was a very important city, that's where their authority was from. And if that's the case and Rome falls, the Roman church isn't going to have authority. That's, what, that, that's why Ro the Roman leaders disagreed with that. So the Roman, the Roman leaders argued for authority as successors to Peter. And they became more juridical in exercising in ecclesiastical headship. They used scripture to support um, their view that they were following in the line of Peter. This is the Petrine Doctrine. Of course, the, the main, uh, I don't have time to read it, is the main uh, scripture is Matthew 16 through 18 through 19, where um, Jesus says to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Um, the rock meaning um, uh, Jesus is the Lord, the Christ, not Peter being the rock. Um, but then Luke 22, 32, uh, in reference to Peter, I have prayed for you, that Jesus said, that your faith may not fail. And then the instructions of Jesus to Peter to feed my lambs, to feed my sheep. All these things talked about how Peter was the greatest of the disciples. Um, they believed that the words of Jesus made Peter's followers the authority. Um, at this point, also, Pope Damasus, who, who was the Pope from 366 to 384, referred to the Roman church as the ap apostolic see, C-S-E-E, -E, which is the foundation the foundation of their church is attributed to an apostle. And this kind of keeps evolving. How is the church building up this view that they are the successors of Peter? The next pope, Pope Sericius, who was in charge from 384 to 389, believed the spirit of Peter lived on in the Roman bishops. Um, he wrote to other churches 
seeking to impose more uniformity in worship, saying, hey, this is how it needs to be done, exercising authority. Um, He did that to the Western churches. I always want to stay away from those Eastern churches because controversy would happen. Uh, The next pope was Innocent I. Um, He exercised authority over local leadership. He brought John Chrysostom back into his role as the bishop. We talked about him three weeks ago. Um, And he condemned the local council that had issued a condemnation towards John. So this um, oversight by uh, the Roman bishop is evident. And it becomes even more evident for our last person we're going to talk about, who is Leo I, who is the bishop of Rome, or the pope, from 440 to 461. He's the most influential pope yet. He was a Roman aristocrat who brought Roman administration to the church. Civil Rome had become weak at this point, already overtaken, but he became just as involved in the civil as involved in the religious affairs. So he's melding the two. He had a book called The Tome, T-O-M-E, which condemned the teachings that were deemed heretical at the Council of Chalcedon, um, which united the church doctrinally. His involvement showed that the church was willing to submit to one central authority. He argued as well that he himself was the heir of Peter. Christ had appointed, is his view, Christ had appointed Peter to be the head of the whole church. All bishops were successors of the apostles. So not just the bishop of Rome having direct, uh, um, being descendants from Peter, but all the bishops were descendant from the apostles. Um, and they possessed the powers that Christ had bestowed on them. But all the apostles were subordinate to Peter. So Peter's the head, all the other apostles. So the papacy, according to Leo, claimed the rights of Peter as supreme governor over the church. So now we get to this point where there's one head, leader, person over the church, a man exercising authority and thinks that it's uh, divinely granted to him. Um, The rise of papal authority increased the centralized power of the church, which inevitably led to serious corruption in the Middle Ages. Um, So that's in the West, but in the East, there was kind of four major churches still. Constantinople, Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch, all in the East. So they kind of serve each other as their leadership as checks and balances to each other. Um, That's not the case in the West. But with Leo's rule, he even exerted authority over those. And eventually, though, the Eastern and Western churches are going to split, and it's because of uh, this authority that's vested in uh, Rome as one of the reasons. So now we have monks. We have the rise of papal authority as we usher into the Middle Ages. Uh, These are some of the things we've talked about over the last six weeks. Um, The first week we talked about the church not being exclusively Western only um, or a a Roman Empire ideal. We saw that the spread of the faith went into Central Africa and also into the East, into modern-day Iran. We kind of have hit on this question over and over, how the church and state are to relate together. Uh, especially when we talked about Constantine, what is the role of the Christian with the relationship between the church and the state? 
We talked about the great church councils that defined proper orthodoxy in relation to Christology, cementing the church's view of the Trinity and especially Christ's human and divine natures. We talked about major figures in the church like Ambrose, John of Chrysostom, Jerome, and Augustine, Um, and then what we talked about today. Some questions for you, though, um, as we leave the study. I'm going to end on time. How are we... I don't have answers for you. I'm just going to pose some questions for you, okay? How are we to live in an ever-increasing secular culture? <clears throat> Seems like the monks had a response to that. <clears throat> Do you think that's our calling? Those are your thoughts. Uh, and our society is not too different from that of Rome. Are we willing, like some of our ancestors in the past, to take a stand for the orthodox teachings of Christianity? Are we going to be like Athanasius? Or are we going to submit to the whims of culture? So I recently heard it said that the battle for truth has three phases in Christian history. One is what we just studied. It was the nature of God and the definition of the Trinity and the nature of Christ. That's the period we just studied. The next period is the nature of salvation, which is the Reformation. Like, how is man saved? Is it by works? Is it by grace? That's the Reformation time period. I also heard, though, that now we're in the battle of anthropology, which the question that we are facing in culture is, who is man? Is man made in God's image? What about man and woman? Are they different? Is there any distinction between men and women? What roles do they have, and are they different at all? Does it really matter? How we answer these questions will show where our hope lies. We will, in the coming years, be called upon to uphold the truths of the Bible. And will will we be like Athanasius, who spent his life defending the right nature of Jesus? Or will we be quick to cower at the potential of persecution? So I think we can learn some things about how we should respond um, in the history of the church by the faithful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you uh, for the opportunity to study the history of your church. Lord, once again, we're in awe of uh, who you are, Lord. Even today, as we saw the preservation of your word uh, through the ages, Lord, we give you praise for that. And Lord, we also see that man in his attempts to be reconciled uh, to you through um, his own work and effort, like the monks, Lord, is futile. Lord, that the true way to understand and be reconciled to you is through a relationship with Jesus. So, Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, we also see the uh, beginnings of a fallacy of church leadership. Lord, we praise you that you have ordained the leadership of a local church and how it is to be led. So, Lord, we praise you for that as well. And, Lord, I ask that today, Lord, as we continue to gather together, that our hearts would be drawn to you, that you would open our eyes and um, Open our ears, Lord, for your word today. Lord, pray that you would bless Pastor Dan as he brings your word to us. May um, we be changed because of it. And Lord, may we also fellowship one with another and build each other up in truth and love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.